Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Dr. Giles Yo Choose the Fat with me, geneticist Giles Yo. Throughout this series, I've been exploring how food interacts with our minds and bodies. But interestingly, we've often been unable to have these conversations without touching on how poverty and food insecurity directly affect the food that's available to us, and therefore our weight and mental health. Helping me really dig into the effects of food poverty is chef and food policy advocate Spike Mendelson. Do you ever get hangry? So imagine having that feeling every day of your life. What stress that does onto your body. Are you going to be a happy human? Are you going to walk around the planet trying to better yourself, do good for others? We're going to end up pumping out is people that are, aren't happy, that are depressed, and the society is just going to be a struggle. And, and that, that's why we should care. You might recognize Spike from TV's Top Chef. He's quite the celeb. President Barack Obama loves his restaurants. But he's also the first chairman of Washington, D.C.'s Food Policy Council. He uses his platform to help improve the quality of school lunches and make whole and healthy foods more accessible to all. By the time they're 65 years old, over half of the children born here in the U.K. in 2021 will experience diet-related disease, which may affect their quality of life. Whether children are born into richer or poorer households will have a huge impact on their risk of obesity, as well as limiting life expectancy. It's vital that we completely overhaul our food policy. I was really interested to hear what Spike feels has worked well in the USA. Is there anything we can learn from his experience? But we need to start at the beginning. What, I asked Spike, is the definition of food insecurity? I don't know if I'll nail the exact definition, but I'll, I'll give you what my heart is here, right? So there's people with like, for example, there's people with type two diabetes that may find themselves with limited purchasing, uh, you know, inexpensive, high calorie ingredients, for instance, right? And uh, they're unable to purchase those healthy foods that they need to have like the, the nutrients in their bodies, right? So that is an example of food insecurity. Imagine that there's fathers, mothers, children, you know, aunts, uncles around the world, people that ha- suffer from, from some type of, of disease that have to constantly think about where their next meal is coming from. And when I mean think, I don't say, hey, am I going to sweet green or kava today? Or am I going to fast food? I'm saying like really dig deep and like, like how, how am I putting food on the table? That's what food security is. I have all these barriers of getting 
good nutritious food on the table. And unfortunately, that that you know most of those places that are targeted are in food deserts or or in neighborhoods that are, are have more poverty because they don't have the grocers, they don't have the means to travel you know as quick to a grocery store. They have corner stores that are are maybe have a couple apples here and there, but for the vast majority have foods that are unhealthy for you and not good for you and that actually make you uh, addicted to it. Because you know in in, in the UK. Right. And we have, you know, we're not that as big a country as the US, but we've got like 60, 60 million people in, on, on this island. Nine million people, nine million people in this country have some level of food insecurity. I mean, in, in the sixth richest country in the world, it is, it is a crying, to my mind, it is a crying shame. And, and I've got into this from a completely different direction, from a biological direction, because obviously I'm a, I'm a geneticist, actually. So yeah. I study why, dif- why different people are different sizes in the food environment we actually, we actually live in. And you might say, well, why am I studying the genetics of body weight? Surely it's because people eat too much. That's why they're larger than someone else. And it is true. You have to eat uh, more in order to gain weight. But what we now know is that for a myriad of different biological reasons, okay, genetic reasons, some people find it more difficult to say no to food than others. It, it could be because they are respond to stress. They comfort eat. It could be because they love food. It could be because it takes more food for them to feel as full as you or me. That's what I study. And, and by the definition, we now know that studying the genetics of body weight is by definition studying the genetics of how our brain influences how we behave around food. And so that then influences the physics. So in other words, because I can't say no, I then end up eating a little bit more each time. And so therefore, I am slightly larger than someone else. Yeah. Then, then what, does, what does poverty have to do with this? And so I've got a, a friend of mine, a colleague's friend, a colleague of mine, Professor Claire Llewellyn, who works in a university college in, in London, okay? One, one of the big universities in London. She's, she uses twins in order to try and understand genetics of human traits, particularly of, of obesity. But crucially, and this is where you'd be interested, she collects food insecurity information about the families she studies. And what she has shown is that if you go to our households, middle-class households, okay, then the heritability, the percentage of a given trait that's going to be down to genetics, okay, the heritability of body weight is around 40%, roughly, okay, on, on average. Whereas if you go to the poorest households, the households with the most food insecurity, that heritability jumps to 70%. Okay. Now, that's not because poor people are genetically different from us, but because if you are biologically more driven to food, okay, so in other words, you find, ooh, I love, I love, I love food. Yeah, I love, oh, I love burgers, or I love hot dogs, whatever. If you then put them in a bad situation, if you, A, are not able to afford a healthier diet, or what you only have around your neighborhood, these food deserts you're talking about, are all takeouts, you know, and that's what you have, and they're cheap, then that's what you're going to get. And so that's a classic example of biology being very important. Mm. But if you fix poverty, we then move the difference between 70% genetic heritability for body weight down to 40%. That's 30% difference without touching a biology, without a single drug, yeah. without doing anything, just fixing poverty. So, so what is interesting is, I mean, I do, um, I go out, I speak to people, I do some broadcasting, radio, and, and, and a bit of TV. And whenever we talk about the fact that, look, there's this link between, you know, poverty and eating and eating well, and the, these are actual statements, actual statements of what some people, all middle class, I want to point out, have, have talked to me. You know, they'll point it out to me 
out loud. They says, oh, look at, you know, look, for example, look at that parent. Why is she buying those terrible frozen pizzas, you know, for $2.99 for four to feed her kids? Why doesn't she, why doesn't she make it from scratch? How come they don't go to the farmer's market? Surely they get better food at the farmer's market if they do it. You know, lentils are very cheap. They're very easy. And this is what people tell me when I'm stood in front of them. And I try and explain to them, look, you know, you are speaking from a position of privilege. You have so much choice in your life. You have time, you have knowledge, you have you have resources in order to do. So I guess I, am, I assume you people have said exactly the same thing to you. Why is unhealthy eating not a choice for so many people? Not a choice. You know, people are almost forced into it. You hinted on one of my favorite sayings is that really in the world, for the most part, we look at food as a privilege Mm-hmm. instead of a right as a human. People don't understand what poverty really means for the most part, right? All of us, all of us, you know, in this room, in my office, we, we never really have to think about where our, our nope. you know, our breakfast is coming from or, or this. We never really have to think about we're, you know, we're not rich by no, you know, means like we're, you know, mid-class, we're making some dollars here, you know, so some of us still living paycheck to paycheck. But still, if you're still paycheck to paycheck, you're still not really worried that much about your food, right? It's just not a reality for that percentage that you point out that it's just not a choice for them. You know, you're right. I do get a lot of like, well, why don't they just buy the apple instead of the Doritos? Or why don't they? Yes. One, in malnutrition, it's definitely affects a person's mental health. So if you're born into poverty and malnutrition, all that malnutrition really affects your brain chemistry and your developmental things, right? So to get more into what you what you know more about, right? Mm. That early stage thing. It's a vicious cycle. It, it kind of gets cycle. you into Yeah, so that's why it's so important to get, I mean, we care about adults, right? And we care about obesity and, and the people yes. that are suffering from diabetes and all this. But really the way to turn this around is to getting to the young and educating and make sure our, our young kids have the right choices in front of them because it really starts on early. Now, you could definitely break the habit, right? And then to, to, to kind of address your question about like, you know, there's families out there, there's many people that I encounter, like mothers that are working, are raising a kid on their own, right? Are working two and a half to three jobs and food just falls to the wayside because their success is getting any type of food. That's right. In their child's mouth to see a smile because if whatever kind of junk food is going to make that kid smile and feel nourished to go the next day, that is good enough for them. And I can't really blame them. Do you know, like, no. you know, like I can't really blame it. It's, it's systematically it's broken. Right. And that's kind of why we need to fix it. And, but change doesn't happen. Change happens very slow. That's one of the things that's painful about this whole process and being involved in it is that like, Oh, there's just so many kids that just need a so good food and, and education and they're they're out there in the millions in the droves, but progression in, in this space happens in, in small strides and, and that's one of the most frustrating things about it. So So the um we just had our the the UK being our national food strategy report and it was done by a restaurateur the guy who runs leon i don't it's a chain of um of relatively healthy food shops in in this in this country anyway so his guys this guy's name is henry dimbleby and he was asked by the government to 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 put together a report 
about what we should do about our national food strategy. It's a, it's a long document. I won't go into the details, but that one of the headline things on it, A, he pushes back on the concept that unhealthy uh, eating is a choice. That's the first thing. So that was very good. But he then suggests prescribing, and he uses this word, prescribing fruit and vegetables for free, right, to those at the poverty line. What, what is your view on doing something like that or something similar? And would it ever work in the United States? I don't even know. But 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 what was your view on that? You know, uh, well, that that has been rolled out in the United States and by a dear friend of mine uh, named Michelle Nishan. So you were able to get these things kind of prescribed and you were able to use your SNAP benefits at farmer's markets to purchase those things with an added discount or something like that if you had the prescription, mm. for instance. And... I, I, I feel like that system could work. Uh, the only hiccup I have with that in, in, is that it, it just doesn't seem too human. It, it doesn't seem too natural of yes. a process. I, I would like to see us to do a little bit better than having to prescribe carrots and celery to, to somebody, you know. But yeah, I mean, I, I, anytime we can get more fruits and vegetables, whole foods in anyone's diet, it's a very important thing, you know. It's a it's a hard it's a hard rollout, you know. Like it it's a hard rollout. It, it is it is a hard. You got to get buy in from large grocers to make it feel right, you know. You can't just have it supported by farmers market. It's a little tough. And then also like farmers markets, by the way, like the resolve in the you know the community is like, oh, just go to farmers market. <laughs> you know, like, oh, because the people that are working through and have jobs that are in poverty can get on a bus or travel to a really beautiful, awesome, secluded farmer's market that you're enjoying with your, like, latte branded cup and, and like, you know, the beautiful <laughs> band and, like, that that's what they have time to do. And, like, that's, you know, that's the other thing. And I'm not giving farmer's market a bad rap. I, I love them. They're more for- the, I love them too, for, yes. For the farmers. Like, that's, we want to bring the farmers, you know, revive farming and, and locality and and all that kind of stuff. But that is not the answer to, to solve malnutrition uh, and poverty. And, and, uh, and the other thing is, you know, gentrification, right? Part of, of what happens is one of our biggest thing in the Food Policy Council is we've been trying to get big grocers into the food desert areas to make food more available and easier, right? Mm -hmm. but, but it's such a long haul. So by the time we write the grants or the legislation, or we make it an attractive enough of a deal for grocers to go into those food deserts. By the time that happens, by the time it gets built out, gentrification happens and poverty has moved. They've moved it somewhere else. And before you know it is that those grocers are just now all of a sudden part of a 20 year plan where it was just like to, you know, gentrify the neighborhood and push it out. And, you know, we have to think, 40 years ahead, 50 years ahead, if we're going to have long lasting change, or we're just going to be in this vicious cycle of gentrification and same thing. So you, you get what I'm saying. So, so one of the interesting things is we, you, in UK, we have a more centralized system, but I, I bet you the dietary advice is going to be the same. So the nutritional advice here in, in, in the UK about the amount of protein you should be having, you know, how many, how much vegetables you should give you know, the food pyramid or the food plate, whatever we're working with these days. And someone actually did a calculation that said that if 
ignoring the middle class people such as us, that if you go to the, the, the people in the bottom 10% of society, if they had to follow the nutritional guidelines offered by the government here, they would spend something along the lines of 60 to 70% of their income trying to eat healthily. So what's the sense in putting out this health guidelines that some people are never going to be able to follow because they got to pay rent? Yeah, well, the health guidelines are not for the 10%. <laughs> They're for the vicious monopolized food markets and, and farm bills and the people that are making the big the big dollars off of this. I mean, you're, you you said it perfectly. It's it's these guidelines are not made for the people that that are uh, impoverished, you know. So the more you you peel away at it, the more you discover on how broken it is. A lot of this groundwork that happens, you know, even in the Food Policy Council, I think that that's the most some of the most important work and that's why you can't just cast a huge umbrella across a whole country and try to write food policy for the whole country all at once because there's so much uniqueness that happens state to state neighborhood to neighborhood they all need different things and, and and different types of legislation that's why i really believe in these food policy councils and taking it state to state i mean as a country like uk i mean like you're you know maybe you're not in need of so many food policy councils, but everything that's written out there doesn't take into account that people can't afford the plan that you're putting out. You know, they, they just can't afford the food. Uh, I mean, I'm a big believer that you have to make the healthy choice, the cheaper and more convenient choice for any of this to work, because otherwise, otherwise it's not going to work. So I think, I, I think we should subsidize healthy food. So not in terms of like coupons or anything. I think when you walk into any supermarket or any grocery store, that the healthier options are, however you do it, always going to be cheaper and as far as possible as the unhealthier options. Now, clearly to middle class people like you and me, if I want to have unhealthy food, I'll pay for it because I can afford it. But if you can't afford it and you say, well, I got to feed my kids. And if you are therefore have no choice, but the choice is healthier, then that's the only way we're going to do it equitably. And then you're walking to a shop, right? Everyone pays the same price, but you're then able to just shop w w without pulling out your coupon and, and, and saying, you know, um, can I have a discount, please, because I'm poor. I, yeah. I think that's the only way it's going to, we're going to fix it. Yeah, and there's a part of shame about doing that, right? That's it. Yeah. That's it. Shame, stigma. And who wants to do that? You're, you're, you're there and, and with your kids in a grocery store. You, you just want to do your shopping and go home. Yeah, I mean, I, I think subsidizing healthier foods makes sense for sure. The workaround on writing that is a massive uphill battle there. Just because you get like, whose healthy foods do you subsidize? That's true. That's true. That's the marketing. That's the That's whole the marketing. marketing. How do you? How do... Yeah, like mm. who, who gets that contract, right? Like uh, with the government. And like, what is, what are they getting in exchange for that? So listen, to me, I feel like there should be a food allotment. For instance, if certain families are making below, you know, a yearly average of what it takes to eat properly, like I'd like to figure out what it takes to eat healthy and subsidize that to the family. Just put that money right. into their pocket, like make that up. So we couldn't make food a right, you know, not a privilege, like taking the idea of a, that to eat healthy is a privilege out of the picture to me is like, just directly do it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The, the one thing to me is that I believe, and, and maybe you disagree, maybe you don't, I think poverty is a political choice. So I, I, I quote you, not, not I'm going to quote Tupac very often, but I quote Tupac, you know, where he, he, he said, uh, you know, they got money for wars, but they can't feed the poor. Right. And I think that's right. I mean, not necess- there's money to be spent on a lot of things except for, for, for feeding the kids, which is, which is I find, um, I, I do think it's uh, criminal. I, I do think it is. That's why that's I keep saying most of us walking around this world don't know what poverty is, and we don't even want to hear about it or care about it, right? Because it's uncomfortable and it's not directly affecting our de- daily lives. And then the other part of the reality of it is that we live in on a pretty vicious planet. You know, we're into our daily lives. We have music we listen to. We do blogs. We do all this kind of stuff. But when you break down the progression of the world and and his, we're, we're very barbaric as humans. But surely, surely we can take advantage of this barbarism and 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 try and because it's the policymakers we have to convince and, and try and convince them that this is the proper investment in the future of your country, of the world, for for for, for that matter. And I just don't understand the people that don't get that. I I a hundred percent agree. But unfortunately, the people that don't get it, and there's a lot of them, and there's a lot of them that have positions of lawmaking, you know, um, <laughs> are just not great people, you know. And I'm not saying they're completely 100% evil, but they're just, this is why we do these. So I, I travel internationally uh, with the CARE organization, right? And what I love about them is I, I, I head up their chef advocacy programs and we take you know members of state and, and the government on these trips abroad and you know they're all in their their suits and they got their congress pin and we take them to third world countries and they get off these planes and then before you know it's like you know planes trains automobiles and they're finally we end to these destinations far out where they never would have been so one of my most recent ones, let's say, was in, um, we went to Mozambique. And these trips are really great because 
they get to see poverty firsthand, you know, in other countries, and they get to see some of the implementation that the organization CARE does, whether it's like grants that we, we, we give out or we show how to do coalition farming. You'd be amazed on how removed they are from the system. They kind of try to hide it and they get a little embarrassed about it. But their, you know, their eyes are just like, you know, they wander and they're like, this is what it's like out here. Like this is some of most, most every time they have this moment that hits home. And then we try to relate it and say, Hey, like, listen, this is also happening in our own country, maybe even in your state, by the way. Right. That's what it takes. It takes an international trip to another country to go to see impoverished and like see systems that we're putting in place that are successful, that are literally dragging people out of poverty. And these are a little bit more difficult to do here, right? Because the poverty is so different uh, abroad, but like a hundred dollar grant took this woman and her family out of poverty, right? This woman, her husband left her, left her with two kids. She lived in Ayacucho, it was 15,000 feet above mountains, right? There's no protein available out there except for guinea pigs. And with that hundred dollar grant, she started a guinea pig farm. And it's small, like little things like that, you know, the other thing here is uh, that I learned from a lot of international aid is that so much of what we do, we sometimes cripple our own economy. Uh, and what I mean by that is that in these food deserts, we need to develop more jobs. We need to have more education in there, right? We can't just go in there and solve the issue and walk out. We can't just give the food. That's right. We have to set systems in place that allows them to earn it the right way and feel good about earning it themselves and putting it on the table themselves. It can't just be a hand-me-out, a coupon. I mean, like, that's right. That's disgusting. That if that's the level we are, like that, that's that's not the way we should. So a lot of the food aid we do internationally is is we don't cripple it by just drop, you know, dropping packages, right? We go in there and we show, you know, we educate, we show, hey, you guys are overfishing all your mangroves here, right? In Mozambique, they have the leading global economy of seafood and it was endangered because they were overfishing mangroves. And all it took is, is a little bit of some other people's, you know, learnings to, hey, you have to rotate every six and a half years from one mangroves to the next to the next and let it replenish. And now you have a sustainable agriculture. And now more families can make monies and more families can drive themselves out of poverty, right? So we need more systems that we're implementing abroad right here in the U.S. and the U.K. that less cripple the economy and raise it for people where people feel they feel good about their, their day's work. Because that's important, too. Right. We, we have to provide more jobs because it's a me- it's like, you know, it's 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 a, it's a mental battle. It's a mental battle. We have to kind of um appeal to the selfish side of human beings because we are, we're, we're selfish. And I guess it's important that we worry about our children's health and nutrition because they are growing. Their brains are still being put together. And so anything that we invest into our children in terms of nutrition, in terms of trying to remove them from food insecurity, is going to make them better adults in very many ways and better contributors to society. I mean, it should be a win-win, you know, for, for, for our government, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it... Let's, we could break it down as this. Do you ever do you ever get hangry? I do. I get. I get. Okay. Don't don't ask my wife. I definitely get hangry. Right. So imagine having that feeling every day of your life for every meal period. What what stress that does onto your body? Are you going to be a happy human? 
Are you going to walk around the planet trying to better yourself, do good for others? You're not, right? We're, we're going to end up pumping out is people that are, aren't happy, that are depressed, that are going to do things that they're not supposed to be doing because they're struggling and the society is just going to be a struggle. And, and that that's why we should care. We should care because we are fortunate enough to have had a head start in life because we don't have to worry about food and others aren't. Once you're able to break it down for people, most people care and want to contribute. They just don't know how, right? So I have a pizza place. It's called We The Pizza. It's on Capitol Hill. Uh, we had the insurrection that happened in January. I'm not sure if you heard that about that. But we, yes, we have a, we're watching it. Uh, so my my uh, restaurant is about 100 feet from there. After you know that unfortunate episode, we had the National Guard at the Capitol. And uh, we had all these kids that were pictured sleeping on the floor of the Capitol. I'm not sure if you saw those pictures, but they were like scoured, right? I saw, yeah. And uh, one of the congresswomen came by, and these kids, by the way, are 16, the National Guard, I don't know if you know, but they're very young. We, we had a congressman come by pizza and deliver for a photo op. She was coming for one photo op to feed maybe five kids, right? And there's like probably thousands of National Guard. There. And uh, that picture went viral. And before you know it, we started getting phone calls from across the world and people were appalled to see kids on the floor, not eating in uniform, what have you. And we raised about, I don't know, it was $1.2 million or something like that. And in the amount of two weeks, oh, wow. basically buying pizza to send to the, the capital, right? And what we ended up doing is we ended up getting 40 other restaurants involved in and around the capital and subsidizing a lot of, of with different foods because we didn't want to just serve pizza to everybody obviously that's a that's a bad look <laughs> so so you know so we're like let's go salads you know so we were you know I, I, I obviously and also you know we've had a huge struggle with small businesses but it's just funny it, it's if people are aware of the situation and there's something that they can do to help more often so i think people are going to be inclined to help so getting the word out there doing podcasts like this having a food policy council being a select you know any type of person with influence celebrity chef whatever and bringing these things up front is what really matters and and yeah i mean this this matters for all of us it definitely matters for for future generations so that's the most important part so listen spike one last question i've asked this to all the guests the UK has come out of lockdown, whatever that means. How have you eaten through the pandemic, through lockdown? Have you eaten better? Have you eaten worse? Have you cooked differently? How, how have you gone through the, the pandemic? Let's just say this. I think a lot of people were surprised because they were forced to cook at home. How enjoyable cooking a meal for yourself can be. So I think that, I think, you know, never would I have, a, I wish COVID, none of us would have, but I tend to always look at like, try to look at the bright side or what's come out of it. So one thing I'd say people, a lot of people, people were cooking at home a lot more. So that was great to see. I happened to be one of those guys, but really I was also very lucky in business because um, I was very busy during COVID. We, we opened up nine uh, locations of my new restaurant, Planet Burger, and it's a vegan uh, concept. And uh, it's a indulgent, greasy, 100% plant-based burger shop. And I ate a lot of those during COVID and uh, uh, just because I was opening them up uh, every other week, right? Yeah, so we had, yeah. we had about, uh, we just opened our 10th last week. 
you know, I bring up that the, the plant-based piece because my, my wife's vegan and she's inspired me. My kids both, you know, you bounces back and forth like, like me, but there's been a massive rise in plant-based foods. Right. And I think for a couple of reasons is a, a lot of the meat analogs that are coming out there have a lot less cholesterol in them. Some have zero. I wouldn't deem them healthier choices in the meat world than animal protein. I, I think you're probably know, know more about that than me but they're better for the environment, right? They also, there are. the other part about eating plant-based foods is when you're putting your money towards foods that are better for the planet, there's a feel-good effect, a stimulating effect that also you feel good that you're contributing to, to bettering the planet as well. So I think that does something to your body uh, as well, right? And, and stimulate yourself. So I've really been enjoying eating a lot of vegan food is kind of where I'm getting to right now. I've been getting a lot more creative in the kitchen, you know, and, and, I did a vegan paella maybe a couple of weeks ago. That was great. And there's some crazy good product coming out there these days now that make it highly enjoyable for a chef to get creative or even a cook or yourself to get in the kitchen and have fun with. So that's kind of the gold rush we're in is the plant-based movement right now. And I think that movement is going to have a really great effect on malnutrition, to be honest with you. And, and I think hopefully as we scale, we'll be able to um, democratize plant-based food more and more. That's my one of my missions, why we opened up Planet Burger, is that we see all these fast food brands and we see the food we're putting out. And for better or worse, they are feeding people. So that's a good thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. But they are also giving people uh, you know, obesity and diabetes because people are getting uh, overindulging on those foods. Uh, and listen, those brands do great work for kids and sponsors and they donate money and all this kind of stuff. But I, I just want to put in perspective that the food that they're serving aren't the healthiest choices for the masses, right? So when they came into play, they were really focusing on um, their, their meals were cheap. So they, the people that didn't have a lot of money, the impoverished people would spend more money on the fast food chains, right? And that would start the vicious cycle. So the reason I open up Plant Burger is because I want to create a brand that's fast food, that's plant-based, that's good for the planet, that's good for you, but also is at a price point that's affordable for all. We are not the plant-based it's charging $12 for a burger. That's not our restaurant. Mm. We work really hard with our purveyors. All my advocacy and everything that I've done, it's really good work and I'm very proud of it. I feel I'm having faster, more effective change, melding my entrepreneurship and business to align with the eating habits that we should see in the world. Uh, does that make sense to you? I feel like it does. I'm, I'm having a much more profound impact on the community. We decided to take cash at a restaurant when a lot of restaurants are going cashless, paperless. Mm. It's a trendy thing. Oh, how trendy is paperlessness? Well, by the way, not everybody has a credit card or a bank card. So the interesting thing about that on average for other fast casual brands, two to 3% of their transactions are cash. For us, it's six to 7% of our transactions are cash because people are seeking out plant-based foods because it's better for them. So I'll leave you with that. Spike, thank you so much for chewing the fat with me. (laughs) I loved it, dude. I want to do more. I'm, I'm sad it's over. Thank you so much, Spike. I think there was a lot there that we as individuals and as a society need to learn from. In my book, Why Calories Don't Count, 
I talk more about how our genes interact with the environment we live in. If you fancy reading it, there's a link to the hard copy and audiobook in the show notes. Do subscribe to the podcast so you're back here next week where I'll be chewing the fat with Chef Tim Anderson. Soul food is, it's it's got to be sort of made with love and it's got to be calorific in a way. Like it's got to sort of sustain you and be filling, you know, strongly flavored and something also kind of cheap and, and, and made from ingredients that are sort of nothing special. For me, there's almost nothing more uh, beautiful about cooking than that sort of process. Until then, thank you so much to Spike Mendelson, to my producer Anushka Tate at Orion Publishing Limited, and to you for being here. See you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.